going to turn to the Word of God and turn to the New Testament, to the Epistle to the Philippians, chapter 2, the Epistle to the Philippians, and beginning to read from verse 1. Philippians 2, beginning to read from verse 1. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy in being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. That our theme this year is Great Christian Thinkers, who continue to influence us today. And you will have noticed, I hope, that they're all Americans. And tonight, and not for the first time, we're going to be thinking about Francis Schaeffer. And I believe that Francis Schaeffer still, with his emphasis on living the truth in love, continues to inspire and motivate us today. And we have much still to learn from him. We're especially grateful to Colin Durier, who is visiting us tonight for the very first time. Colin himself was a friend of Francis Schaeffer. He is a former commissioning editor of the InterVarsity Press, and he's the author of many books, one of which only is available on the bookstall tonight. And I'm going to recommend it to you at the end of the meeting. I have read it. And so has Colin. He's read it too. It's a superb read, and I recommend that you buy it. The book is entitled Francis Schaeffer, An Authentic Life. And so, Colin, a warm welcome to you tonight. We look forward to what you have to say to us, and he's prepared to answer some questions later. So can I just hand the meeting over to Colin? Thank you very much for that welcome, and uh, thank you for the opportunity to speak here about um, Francis Schaeffer. Um, it's a great privilege to be able to, to do that. He's somebody that um, I greatly admire. And the title of my lecture is Francis Schaeffer, in a word, Authentic. 
Two years ago, I published a biography of Francis Schaeffer, which you've just heard about. I've been asked why, after writing many books on fantasy, Tolkien, C.S. Lewis and the Inklings, I've turned to a biography of a formative uh, Christian pastor who died over a quarter of a century ago. The short answer is my debt to him. He opened doors for me as a young student at a time when I just discovered the writings of Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. Francis Schaeffer actually encouraged me to pursue my lifelong interest in literary fantasy after I gave a paper at Le Brie in Switzerland. Writing the biography, however, was not simply to discharge this debt. I wished also to try to portray the essential Schaeffer, getting past the many, sometimes misleading, labels attached by people to him. Many people see their own Schaeffer or, or have only heard about him under a label. Schaefer the Fundamentalist, Schaefer the founder and inspiration of Labrie Fellowship, Schaefer the prophetic commentator on the contemporary world, Schaefer the right-wing activist. Readers, I think, might well be surprised by the man himself as they get to know him more fully. There is a consistency behind his work as it unfolded through much of the 20th century, from his years as a youthful pastor in America. This consistency is explained by his growth and spiritual and intellectual struggles. It is the pilgrimage of a truly great Christian whose flaws and faults, as must be the case, were confronted and not denied. He lived an authentic life. In his life, I think, we can see the hand of God working in contemporary history, using, as he does, apparently ordinary and unremarkable people with extraordinary vision in constantly unexpected ways. Francis Schaeffer's preferred medium was talk, conversation, whether with an individual or with a large group of people. He had an uncanny knack of of addressing an individual personally, even if one was sitting with several hundred other people. His tapes, books and films are best seen as embodiments of his conversation or table talk. Schaeffer's quaint expression, true truth, is typical of the penetrating style he employed to communicate. He invented terms and images that seemed rough wood and yet allowed his message to get through. He was conscious that evangelicals talk about truth rather as Martha talked about the resurrection. It did not really apply to her dead brother right now. But truthful Schaeffer went right back to the God behind all created reality a God who is there and not silent. If God is there, then there are answers to the deep human questions. If he is not, there are no answers. There is no point in waiting at the train station if no train is coming. Truth must lead to spiritual reality. Schaefer unashamedly viewed truth as a system coherently expressed in the reliable words of Scripture. Though truth is never merely intellectual and theoretical, he nevertheless pointed to its intellectual force in the areas of epistemology, metaphysics and morals. He also demonstrated briefly that truth can be expressed in a theoretical system, yet he saw it more fundamentally as encompassing all areas of human life, such as the basic realm of consciousness and perception, as well as the devotional and the cultural, as well as law, politics and personal relationships. True spirituality involves the totalitarian rule of Christ over all of life. 
Schaefer spoke about this in an interview with me in 1980, less than four years before he died. He said, I was one of the first evangelical writers to speak of the meaning of Christianity in music, art, philosophy and such things. As time went on, and I emphasised increasingly the Lordship of Christ, it became obvious that the battlefields were not only the cultural and intellectual ones, but also in the area of law. The Lordship of Christ was to become the integration point of Schaeffer's theology. It is well known that Schaeffer saw himself, first of all, as an evangelist, despite a publisher's blurb labelling him, quote, theologian and philosopher, foremost evangelical thinker of our day. His apologetics was shaped in this context and hence was person-centred. He felt that if the, if the God revealed in the Bible truly exists, is really there, then the most important of all facts is a person. Personality is at the centre of reality. And if Christians really believe that, they are obliged to value the people they encounter. Most of his writings grew out of his conversations and discussions with people who turned up at Labrie, his home high in the Swiss Alps. Intermediate between his writings and those encounters were his lectures and table talk, which he at first only reluctantly allowed to put on audio tape. Eventually, well over a thousand hours of lectures, discussions and talks were recorded. Students at Labrie listened to his somewhat high-register voice through headphones for many hours, assiduously taking notes. If we are to capture the essence of Francis Schaeffer, it is important to understand his impact on individuals and on movements, such as an awakening, awakening to the arts that is being experienced by many evangelicals. It is also necessary to sketch his life and the formation of the Libri community, which I tried to do in my book. But concentrating only on his books, and possibly films and taped lectures, does not give a complete picture. He acknowledged, for example, that one could come away from his books with a negative view of the arts. This is because his books have a, pro a prophetic function of pointing out the sorrow and pain at the heart of modern culture and the despair that has come about through communal as well as individual rebellion against God. On the other hand, those who knew and studied under Schaeffer were often inspired to intense involvement in the arts, hence the necessity of going beyond his books. It is also important to remember that Schaeffer, Schaeffer's eventually voluminous writings evolved from personal um, conversations. He had his critics with concerns ranging from his broad brush strokes in cultural analysis to his identification late in life with the American right and the Republican Party. It is inevitable that publication on so massive a scale will be critically scrutinised. Any criticism, however, needs to bear in mind what the evangelist and apologist was doing. Only in this way can the true depth of his scholarship and wisdom be appreciated. Scholarship does not consist only of specialised and highly technical writing. Schaefer was a man of the broad sweep and the generalisation, rather like C.S. Lewis's popular theology and even some of his literary criticism. This is how J.I. Packer sees Schaefer. And Os Guinness once pointed out that the greatest thing about Francis Schaeffer was Francis Schaeffer. What then was his history? 
So a bit about his background. Francis Schaeffer was the child of working-class parents with German ancestry on his father's side. He was born on January the 30th, 1912, in Germantown, Pennsylvania. Nearly three years later, on November the 3rd, 1914, his future wife, Edith Seville, was born in China of missionary parents. As a child, he helped his father with carpentry and building jobs. Not surprisingly, Francis chose woodwork and technical drawing as his main subjects when he started high school. By the age of 17, young Schaefer was working part-time on a fish wagon. Those were his words. I'm not quite sure what a fish wagon is. He later admitted to having barely made it in high school. But a dramatic change took place in his intellectual development when he taught English to a Russian count. The count learned English by reading an introductory book on Greek philosophy, which Schaefer purchased by accident instead of a textbook. (laughs) The same book opened up Schaefer's mind. A churchgoer, though the church he attended was liberal, he started to read the Bible alongside a work of Ovid. He later observed, quote, The United States, when I was young, through the 20s and 30s, showed basically a Christian consensus. It was, of course, uh, poorly applied in certain areas, such as race or compassionate use of accumulated wealth. In his reading of the Bible, he was surprised to find answers to the deep philosophical questions he had begun to ask. After a six-month period of reading through the Bible, he committed himself to Christ and to the Christian faith. By September of 1930, which was the year of his high school graduation, he was able to jot in his diary that, in his words, all truth is from the Bible. And throughout his life, he reread the Bible from end to end on numerous times. After high school, Schaefer enrolled at the Dreskel Institute in Philadelphia, uh, in Germantown, as an engineering student. He was in a dilemma, however, for he felt an unmistakable calling from God to be a pastor. His parents wanted him to be a manual worker like his father, but by the end of the year, he had told them of his desire that would dramatically change the course of his life. The fall of the next year found Schaefer at Hampton Sydney College in Virginia. As he studied for the ministry, there were various indications of the unusual quality of his character, the way in which he faced bullying, his participation in a Sunday school for black people in the vicinity, and his service as president of the Student Christian Association. The year after starting at Hampton, Sydney, Francis Schaefer met Edith Seville at the First Presbyterian Church of Germantown. In her, he discovered an ally against liberal attacks upon the integrity of Scripture. In 1935, after he graduated magna cum laude, the two cast their fortunes together in marriage. Edith's culture and refinement perfectly complemented his concern with personal relationships, which was forged by his working-class background, but also was part a unique part of his temperament. The two together shaped the later work at Labrie, and Edith's, Edith's books added to the overall impact of Francis's writings. In the first ten years of their marriage, three daughters were born, with a son, Frank, some years later. Frank now is a well-known novelist and writer. Schaefer entered Westminster Theological Seminary in September 1935, 
The lecturers at that period included Cornelius Van Til, J. Gresham Machen, and John Murray. Van Til and Alan McRae of the Biblical Theological Seminary, he would later recall, particularly stirred his intellectual thought. When Machen's growing controversy with the Presbyterian Church in the USA led to his being expelled from the ministry, Schaefer and several others, including the hardline Carl McIntyre, felt compelled to separate from the denomination as well. This led to the founding of Faith Theological Seminary in Wilmington under Alan McRae. Schaefer moved from Westminster to Faith to complete his studies. In 1938, becoming the first minister of the newly organized Bible Presbyterian Church. He was based in Grove City, Pennsylvania. In 1941, he moved to a church in Chester, Pennsylvania, where he identified with the many working-class members of his congregation, both city and country folk. Reflecting on this period of theological and ecclesiastical turmoil, the Schaefers in later life were not happy with some of the decisions made in early career, particularly regarding the issue of separation. They came to see that truth, both in theory and in relationships with fellow Christians, is more foundational than maintaining ecclesiastical separation. The horizons of their future work began to open up when the Schaefer family moved to St. Louis in 1943, where they began an organisation called Children for Christ. At first, it was intended to help the local Bible Presbyterian Church reach out to the children of St. Louis. But the movement eventually spread to other churches and then other denominations, though at that time the Schaefers were still separatist. This seemingly small evangelistic outreach to children was the stimulus which led Francis and Edith to Europe in the crucial years following the Second World War. When Francis expressed interest in the state of youth work and of the church's confrontation with theological liberalism in Europe, his denomination's mission board authorised him to make a fact-finding tour in 1947, a tour which changed his life and which was eventually to change the lives of countless others throughout Europe and the world. Let's look at the the call of Europe. The young pastor, then in his mid-thirties, spent three months travelling, first around France, then visiting Geneva and Lausanne in Switzerland, before making his way up to Oslo for a young people's convention. His conviction that evangelicals must separate themselves from liberalism and its embodiment in the spreading ecumenical movement intensified. He was inspired by many European evangelicals that he met, including Ole Halsby in Norway and Martin Lloyd-Jones in Britain. All the time, the conviction was growing in his heart that God was calling him to serve in Europe in some way, however small. When Schaefer returned to the United States after his fact-finding tour, his mission board asked him if he would go to the Netherlands to prepare for an international conference in Amsterdam in the August of 1948 and to serve the church in Europe effectively as missionaries. Thus it happened that in February 1948, the nomadic existence of the Schaefer family began as they set sail for Europe. In Amsterdam, Francis Schaeffer met a serious young Dutchman called Hans Ruckmarker, who was gathering what was to become one of the largest jazz collections in Europe. On discovering that Schaeffer was an American, 
Ruckmarker approached him for a quick chat about music, which was Ruckmarker's greatest love, greater than his love for art. The two of them ended up talking to 4am, mainly about modern art. This was the start of a long and deeply significant friendship. Not surprisingly, it began with a conversation, like so much in Francis Schaeffer's life. The two men were shaped and enriched by each other's ideas and biblical understanding. Both had been converted largely by reading through the Bible with philosophical questions in mind. Ruckmarker's questions had been sharpened by his agony over the fate of Jewish people, including his fiancée, under the Nazi occupation. Later, he and his wife Anki, who had been a close friend of his fiancée, became members of Labrie Fellowship, leading its distinctive work in the Netherlands. But Labrie was not even a dream in 1948. But the spiritual unity between the two men was real. Many years later, in his inaugural lecture to the Chair of Art History at the Free University in Amsterdam, Ruckmarker paid public tribute to his friend. It seemed to me a token, he, he, he said, not only of our friendship, but also of our spiritual unity, that you have come from Switzerland for this occasion. Since the first time we met in 1948, we have had many long talks about faith, philosophy, reality, art, the modern world and their mutual relation. I owe very much to these discussions, which have helped to shape my thoughts on these subjects. I want to express my deep gratitude and consider it a great honour and joy to be a member of the Libri Fellowship. In a subsequent interview um, that I made with Ruckmarker, he again spoke of the tangible unity that bore so much fruit. And he said in that interview, It was in 1948 that I first met Schaefer. I was bit, a bit dissatisfied with Dutch Christianity, which I felt was in some cases below what it should be, particularly on the level of personal faith and way of walking with the Lord. On the other hand, I feel that Anglo-Saxon Christianity really lacks the intellectual insight we have developed in Holland. In a way, what Dr. Schaefer and I have tried to do is to fuse the two things, to make them into something new. In the next few years, the Schaefer family settled in Switzerland. Their son Frank was born and Francis and Edith kept busy working with children and warning evangelical churches about liberalism and the more subtle threat of neo-orthodoxy, specifically as embodied in the theology of Karl Barth. Barthianism was a particular, was a particular problem because of the attractiveness of Barth's thought, especially his attacks upon theological liberalism. To depict the dangers of neo-orthodoxy, Schaeffer focused on the historical context of religious existentialism. At about the same time, the husband and wife team created Sunday school material that was based on the Gospel of Luke and later published by Scripture Union as Everybody Can Know. Now, a little about the crisis in uh, a big crisis in Schaefer's life. In the Sunday School Times, in the Sunday School Times of June the 16th and June the 23rd, 1951, Francis Schaefer published an article entitled "The Secret of Power and Enjoyment of the Lord," 
the need for both purity and love in the Christian life. The opening words reflect deep spiritual struggle. And these were the opening words. What is the secret of power? Certainly, as we consider Christianity today, true Bible-believing Christianity, we must be impressed by the fact that there is not the consistent power that there has been in certain periods in the past. The same thing is also true of the enjoyment of the Lord. In our day, life is such that, while Christians do many things to serve the Lord, it is obvious from our faces and our conversations that few enjoy him. These heartfelt words go back to earlier in that year, when he had paced up and down in his hayloft in the Swiss village of Champray when the weather was wet and walked the countryside when it was dry, re-examining the basis of his faith and commitment to the Lord. His goal was a true evangelical spirituality that was obedient to scripture and did not neglect the work of the Holy Spirit. He emerged as committed as ever to a systematic theology, but also convinced of the need for moment-by-moment dependence upon Christ, a truly existential or experiential dimension to faith. Without a present reality, he felt, an orthodox theology does not lead to power and enjoyment of our Lord. Schaeffer's profound spiritual struggles in 1951 led not only to the Sunday School Times article, but also to his book True Spirituality, which was not published until 20 years later in 1971. This volume was shaped from a series of talks originally given in 1953 at a Bible camp in the United States. These were honed and represented in Switzerland after Labrie had started. They were given again in the United States in 1963 and at Labrie in 1964, at which time they reached their final form. The book was based upon transcriptions of audio tapes of the Labrie lectures, uh, tapes students at Labrie were encouraged to listen to alongside their studies of Christianity and culture. Schaefer always believed that without this deep struggle to find reality in the Christian life, the work of Labrie would never have started. There were several testing years, however, before it was inaugurated in 1955, and the Schaefers cast off their links with their separatist mission board. They were on their own, unless God was real. Now a little about the genesis of uh, Labrie. Francis and Edith Schaeffer were preparing to continue their dual work of reaching post-Christian children, European children who had had no opportunity to hear the gospel and of alerting evangelical churches throughout Europe to the dangers of theological liberalism and neo-orthodoxy. Over the seven years between their arrival in Switzerland as nomads and their settling in the alpine village of Huemo saw along where Labrie became based. However, a new factor had gradually entered their lives. I'll put an image up here of the... Oh, sorry. Not ready for that yet. Can't go back. Oh, yes, I can. Um, this new factor was that finishing school students mainly girls and young women of many nationalities, came to attend their worship services and, more importantly, to raise questions about the Christian faith. At first, the services had been tiny. In, 
<clears throat> they were just simply mean meetings in the Schaefer's home. But then they were allowed to utilize an abandoned Protestant church. Um, I should say that they lived in a Roman Catholic canton at that time. The discussions took on increasing importance, leading to a realization of the need for a work like Labrie, even though buried in the rural Alps. Years later, Schaefer confessed, I was amazed in those discussions to find I could answer those girls' questions in a way that a lot of them actually became interested. The birth of Labrie was marked by trauma and spiritual testing. Not least, the Schaefers were ordered out of Switzerland, a situation that was reversed by dramatic answers to prayer that Francis and Edith saw as waymarkers of a new path into which the Lord was leading them. Schaefer recorded the significant events in his heavily annotated Bible. So um, Schaefer records in his Bible, told to leave Champray, uh, February 14th, 1955, to be out by the end of March. Then the next note is promise-free money paid on Malaise around March the 4th, um, 1955. That's a down payment on the mortgage. And the next note is moved to Huema, March 31st, 1955. Then... Rest of money on Malaise, May 30th, 1955. Next note, resignation from IB, that's the Independent Board, June 5th, 1955. Um, And then the next note is the Sojourner's Permit came, June 21st, 1955. And then finally, first prayer letter sent on July 9th, called for day of prayer and fasting on July 30th, 1955. So these few marginal notes cover dramatic events, um, miraculous answers to prayer, um, overwhelming, um, an overwhelming sense that God was working. And this was the beginning of Labrie. By word of mouth, over the years, news spread to college and university students that there was a place in the Alps where one could get honest answers to life's deepest questions. Eventually, young people from all over the globe began streaming their way up to the Schaefer's Alpine home in an obscure part of Switzerland, a pilgrimage perhaps unique in the history of evangelicalism. In the early years of Labrie, however, Schaefer was basically content to continue carefully and compassionately listening and then giving answers to the small groups of students who became, during their stay, part of the Schaefer's own home. Though sometimes he felt frustrated, he believed that God would work in, on the seeds he and Edith planted. And they had the joy of seeing some students praying to Christ for salvation. Soon a pattern to the Schaefer's Labrie lives was established to the satisfaction of both Fran and Edith at that time. Though Fran was to feel increasingly cut off and isolated, having broken the links with his former separatist ne- network. At this time, guests would visit for weekends rather than for extended periods. But by 1956, a year after Labrie began, a daily schedule essential to Francis's organised makeup and to the success of the work was established. This is the, um, the family at that time, just before Labrie began in Champray. This is the daily schedule... There's, uh, there's too much to note there, but it's, uh, it's just to give you an indication of, um, of the organisation. For example, on, um, on, the, on the Sunday at 11.30am there would be a church service and late afternoon there would be high tea and conversation. 
And by conversation, Edith Schaefer meant um, answering honest questions uh, with honest answers on a broad range of subjects, on any subject that people wanted to raise. And then um, there'll be a Bible study on Monday with translation into French. Tuesday, Francis would be in Milan doing a Bible class there. Um, on Wednesday, there'll be Children for Christ um, class in, in their home. Thursday, there would be a, um, a Bible class in Lausanne for students where, where um, Schaefer gave his lectures on the early chapters of Romans, which is now available in book form. And then Friday, the weekend crowd would arrive for dinner and there'll be more conversation in, in, um, conversation in Edith's technical meaning. And then Saturday, there would be walks and conversations and hot dog roast by the fireplace and family prayers. Um, so that, that was the pattern that was emerging, which would become typical of Labrie. In the early days, there was no thought of books or films or even audio tapes of conversations and discussions. The development from tapes to books to films was a gradual, almost reluctant process. But by the year 1968, over 1,000 hours of audio tape covering such themes as true spirituality, the books of Romans and Revelation, the Westminster Confession, and various cultural issues um, varying, ranging across the arts and media had been recorded. And Schaefer often told the story of how the um, lectures came about because um, some of the students, and with uh, Edith's collusion, planted a microphone in, 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 a flower, in a pot of flowers and recorded a conversation going on with some, some um, students. And when Schaefer found out, he was very, very angry, and he could get very, very angry. But then he, then he realised that the, the, the students wanted to have copies of these tapes to take back with them. Um, and this was how the recording started. Another turning point in the develop, development of Labrie was the founding of a similar work in England in 1958, quite soon after the beginning of um, the Swiss Labrie, after Francis had given lectures in Oxford and elsewhere in Britain. That work was eventually to be led by Ronald Macaulay, who married the Schaefer's second daughter, Susan. The establishment of an English Labrie was symbolic of the deep influence Schaefer was to have on a generation of British evangelicals. In particular, he formed warm and sig significant links with InterVarsity Fellowship, now called the UCCF. He also took a deep interest in what was happening both on the British theological scene and in British culture, especially when its rock music began to have a worldwide influence. One of the many things that interested um, Schaefer was seeing the teddy boys in the streets. Um, he, th he thought that was a very significant um, um, phenomenon. Now, a, look at, um, a quick look at um, Schaefer's writings. We could be here for a week talking about those. Um, every year he read the Bible through at least once, and he, he had the habit of annotating. And then when the Bible wore out, he would transfer the annotations onto a, a, new, a new edition of the Bible, um, sometimes with the help of his uh, daughter, the path of Schaefer's publications, over 20 of them in all, but particularly his three, three core books, is startlingly presaged in early writings from the time of his separatism. And uh, I, I put this into my book because it, it emphasised very much the fact that um, there was essentially one Schaefer, even though there were changes over his life. An article Schaefer wrote probably just before leaving for Europe remarkably carries the seeds of his mature thinking. 
A review of a review appeared in the Bible Today, a periodical linked to Franz separatist denomination, published in October 1948. Edith Schaefer, no doubt closely reflecting her husband's opinion on this important point, observed in her book The Tapestry. This review, although short, amazingly enough was to give all the basic ideas which years ahead were to help him first in his own struggles concerning truth and which later still were to be formed into an enlarged study to be called by some people Schaefer's Apologetic. Previous issues of the Bible today had stimulated considerable interest by exploring the very different roles of presuppositions and Christian evidences in evangelism. The question of different roles alluded to unresolved tensions between the evidentialist approach of the old Princeton School of Machen, Alan McRae and others, and the presuppositionalism of Van Til in his apologetic syllabus at Westminster Seminary. Indeed, this tension contributed to the founding of Faith Seminary as a breakaway from Westminster. Schaefer's starting point was a review of E.J. Carnell's An Introduction to, to Christian Apologetics by Oliver Buswell, entitled Presuppositionalism, in the May 1948 issue. Schaefer's approach, as someone who admired both Van Til and the evidentialist approach, is ironic. He tries to demonstrate that a middle path can be taken between the two positions. In his words, the problem is not insoluble. For him, the communication of the gospel should be the focus and priority, drawing upon whatever tools are appropriate in actual evangelism, whether one draws on the importance of presuppositions or upon evidences from history and archaeology or a, combina- or a combination. Schaefer's position was relatively unchanged from his position in 1948 when I interviewed him in 1980, uh, less than four years before his death. For Francis, there is a common ground between the Christian and the, and the non-believer, allowing the use of intellectual argument and evidences. This is because, and only because, the non-Christian is inconsistent with his or her beliefs about reality. To say there is a common ground is not therefore to say that any part of the universe or human thought is neutral terrain, not requiring presuppositions that are Christ-centred in order to properly interpret. As he put it back there in 1948, and I've put part of the article here. He he wrote, The average unsaved man has two parts to his worldview. One, insofar as he is logical in his unbelief, his system is hopeless and has no contact with the Christian system. This would include, if completely logical, a complete cynicism or scepticism to the natural world so that he could not be sure that the atoms which constitute the chair he sits on will not suddenly arrange themselves into a table or even that the atoms may not disappear entirely. If logical, he would have no contact with the reality, and I believe suicide would be the only logical answer. It would be completely other to the true world which God has made. Two, some men have come to the above state, but very few. The rest have much in their thinking, which only logically belongs in the Christian system. There are all degrees... Of this intellectual cheating. The modernistic Christian is the greatest cheater. The cynic who is just short of suicide but continues to bring more life into this world by his to him amoral actions 
when logically he should be erasing all life possible from this again to him hopeless world, cheats the least. Notice Schaeffer's unshakable realism. He is concerned with living authentically as the key to effective Christian apologetics, which meets people both in their need and at the point of their inconsistency. Whether this involves their large-scale cheating, as he bluntly calls it, or being willing to be consistent enough to contemplate suicide as a consequence of their non-Christian worldview. Placing this authenticity at the centre of apologetics soon led Schaefer into his own crisis period, when he felt forced to lay his own faith on the table in a necessarily reckless realism. Another article which presages his future development is entitled The Christian and Modern Art. This was published in the Bible Today in March 1951. Its radicality is by no means as obvious as what was stated about the failure of love among those who fought for doctrinal and ecclesiastical purity, which was in his Sunday, Times, um, his Sunday School Times article published three months earlier, later. Sorry. Yet in its way, it is as much a manifesto essay and goes to the heart of Schaeffer's concerns as an evangelist to modern people, goes to the heart of those concerns for the rest of his life. It is stamped with insights that had come from his burgeoning friendship with Hans Ruckmarker, whom he acknowledges early in the article. He writes, In writing on art, I acknowledge with pleasure the stimulating conversations I I have had with a young Christian art critic of Amsterdam, H. R. Ruckmarker. It is, like, um, it is likely that some of the conversations came out of both men's viewing an exhibition of modern Belgian artists in Amsterdam, which include Delvaux, who is discussed at some length in the article. Francis mentions also looking at the artistic treatment of the medieval crucifix, which he'd done when he um, travelled around Europe in his fact-finding tour. Carefully studying modern art, he says in his words, tells us quickly and concisely the kind of day in which we live. Art not only speaks to us of the general worldview of an age or a people, but speaks to us of the religious thinking as well. And he gives the example of Rembrandt for Protestant art and Hans Bolding from the century before Rembrandt for Roman Catholic art. In fact, he argues, the new modernism is to theology what modern art is to art. And he explained that this was because they were both founded upon a denial of the Bible and therefore lack any fixed point. The only difference is that the modern artist and the modern musician have been far more honest in portraying this unrelatedness. The honesty of modern artists over what Schaefer elsewhere called the problem of reality, as propounded in this heartfelt article, makes it easy to see why his concern with understanding the arts and culture of the present time is intimately tied up with his own quest for reality in the wet spring of 1951. It also explains why modern art and culture continue to be a a predominant concern of his in his subsequent ministry. The honesty of the artist presented a doorway for communicating the hope for humanity that came from Christ's finished work on the cross. Not only that, the honesty resonated with him subjectively, He had discovered a deep affinity with those who were willing to face the outer darkness of a disrelated world 
where all is relative. And it further explains the bond between Schaefer and Ruckmarker. Concluding his article, Schaefer broadened the picture of modern art that he had briefly but evocatively painted to take in the whole sweep of contemporary society and culture, a broad sweep that would eventually become his hallmark. It was inevitable that this was so when modern culture and society is seen in the light of something as fundamental as the problem of reality. And Schaefer writes, Unsaved men of the past have kept from being washed into unrelatedness in theology, philosophy, art, etc., by various inconsistencies. Today it is though God has released man and is allowing him in all the fields of life to go to his natural level. This is true in the practical aspects such as government and morality, in the basic aspects such as theology and philosophy, and in the expressional aspects such as art and music. This is one of the great signs of our time. And here um, Schaefer is reaching for a point of contact. He continues... Theology is not separated from life, nor is art. And if we are to understand our day in a way which will enable us to be most on our guard against the drift of it, and to enable us to preach Christ to the men who are enveloped by the drift of our day, it is well not only to have some knowledge of modern theology, but these other things as well. Such knowledge enables us to understand our day, and also provides a point of contact with those who are children of it. There are many people who we, we can reach for Christ far better if we have an understanding of these things which exhibit the basic modern viewpoint, and therefore we can understand something of that by which today's men are bound, not only in spiritual darkness, but in intellectual and emotional darkness, which ultimately are rooted in and spring from that spiritual darkness. I've uh, spent a little time talking about Schaeffer's early writing rather than his later writing because um, to see those, uh, those um, presages of what was to come and uh, uh, I think that's fascinating to, to look at. Now, British and American universities and colleges gradually became a pattern in Francis Schaeffer's life. It was without of these tours that the books were the books that are most frequently associated with him were born. Apart from a few booklets that Schaefer um, put together in his early ministry, his first published book was Escape from Reason, which was published by IVP uh, in, in the UK in uh, 1968. Like the tape programme, the book programme came into being without conscious planning, but because of demand. In fact, many of Schaefer's now voluminous writings are based on transcripts of talks captured on audio tape. Upon revising Escape from Reason not long before his death from cancer, Schaefer reaffirmed its continuing topicality. In fact, he felt that it was more topical in 1980 than when it was first published. And the preface to Escape from Reason explains why Schaefer, in analysing the trends in modern thought, begins deep in the Middle Ages with Thomas Aquinas. Such an analysis, he points out, should be concerned with both philosophy and history. By investigating the historical background, we can discover, in his words, unchanging truth in a changing world. Escape from Reason provides a frame for much of Schaeffer's life work as a pastor, apologist, 
and latterly a campaigner for human rights. His work should be seen in this context rather than that of academic philosophy, theology, or even the politics of the American right. Not surprisingly, his little book, which reads like an intellectual slideshow, has provoked criticisms which also apply to some of his other publications. Some have disputed his thumbnail sketches of great historical figures. This is particularly true of his portrayals of um, St. Thomas Aquinas and Kierkegaard. It should be borne in mind that there is room for honest differences of interpretation of such figures. It is plausible to see, as Schaeffer does, Kierkegaard as the father of both religious and secular existentialism. The interpretation of Aquinas, is, of Aquinas is also plausible. If Aquinas did open the way for a later division in knowledge, as, uh, as Schaeffer thought, we need not conclude that much or even most of his work is not valuable nor distinctly Christian. Schaeffer is in line with many scholars, however, in seeing Aquinas and Kierkegaard as radical, radically innovative. In my view, the philosopher Hermann Doiveard's analysis of what he called ground motives of form, matter, nature, grace, and nature, freedom, backs up Schaeffer's sketch of the development of ideas from um, Aquinas' time. Just a word about The God Who Is There, another of um, Schaeffer's core books. Um, This essential book in uh, Schaeffer's corpus was in preparation before and published soon after Escape from Reason. It was really his first venture into deliberate publication, He had been as reluctant about going into print as he had been about recording on audio tape. And the God who is there picks up on the thesis of Escape from Reason, tracing the origins of the modern relativism in knowledge and morals to an abandonment of the perennial human search for a unified field of knowledge, which in itself brings out a whole new facet of of Schaeffer, which I'm very interested in, his concept of wholeness in human life. All that gives meaning to human beings and their society and culture is relegated to the realm of the mystical and the non-rational. In this, Schaeffer noticed the emergence of what is now known as postmodernism. He traces the steps by which this mentality eventually spread to every part of society and culture. He emphasises as well the role that modern theology has played in promoting relativism and the mystical leap. The problem is particularly insidious because the new theology... Um, Schaefer pointed out, uses orthodox Christian terminology, conveying the impression of rational content and categories that in fact are increasingly absent. A third book in, um, in the three core books of, um, of Schaefer's writings was He Is There and He Is Not Silent, where, um, where Schaefer made a venture into uh, philosophy, uh, looking at um, the areas of metaphysics, morals and epistemology and how... Um, it's necessary to have a Christian worldview in, in order to have adequate answers to, to the, these kind of philosophical issues. Now, I want to look at the final phase in um, Schaeffer's life. Schaeffer's realism, his concern for the practice of truth in his generation, led him to an activist stance on, of defending the rights of the unborn child, the weak and the elderly. His theology was that of the lordship of Christ over every area of life, the womb as well as the university seminar room. This activist stance received special emphasis only after his move into filmmaking, into what he would have called general culture. 
Previously, such a stance was seen by American evangelicals as a Roman Catholic concern. Just as he had been persuaded first to record talks and discussions and then to publish books, so was he eventually persuaded of the value of making films. Unlike the previous ventures, this move caused some uneasiness within the Labrie leadership. The idea came from his young son, Frank. And uh, Schaefer explained in an interview how the um, first film, How Should We Then Live, came about. And he says, As the books came out and sold so well, millions in 25 languages, the next thing was that Frankie came to me and said, Dad, you're saying something that most people aren't saying. In order to give what you're saying a wide hearing, would you do a film? This was a brand new idea, and I was very reticent. The more I thought and prayed about it, the more I realised that, rather than being a discontinuity, a film is very much a continuity with writing books. Quite frankly also, he said, I had seen Kenneth Clark's Civilization and felt that he was totally unfair, especially in the Reformation episode, so I wanted to counter that in some way. Parallel to the film series was a large format hardback book of the same name, especially written rather than based upon tapes. How Should We Then Live is one of Schaefer's most carefully wrought books. Its portrayal of the history of art, necessarily selective, was written in consultation with Hans Ruckmarker. Other consultants were used for other areas, for example music, in a rather uneven way, I should say. The basic thesis of Escape from Reason was greatly expanded, with the historical sweep now going right back to Roman times. Schaefer spoke at various seminars where the film series was shown, a pattern which anticipated the more controversial series, Whatever Happened to the Human Race, the project in which um, a leading American surgeon, um, Everett Koop, collaborated. Their concern was the widespread increase in abortion on demand and the concomitant peril of a likely spread of euthanasia. This seemed unthinkable at the time. The use of human embryos in research lay in the future. Schaefer and Koop attributed this development to a monolithic acceptance of moral and epistemological relativism in the West. This acceptance was simplified under the label of secular humanism, which in, um, in Schaefer's mind um, contrasted with the, the true humanism of Christian faith. The tangible blessings which had accrued to society from Christian insights into human nature were rapidly being eroded by this new secular humanism. The film series and the book of the same name emphasised the historic nature of the Christian truth claims. So you see the same balance, um, the same middle ground that uh, Schaefer was interested in between presuppositionalism and evidentialism. While filming the new series, Schaefer learned that he had cancer of the lymph system. Only immediate medical action saved his life, and thereafter frequent courses of chemotherapy were necessary. The shadow of death intensified his concern to do what he could to try to reverse the, hor the horrific trend of easy abortion, resulting in the deaths of millions of unborn children. Joining the pro-life lobby identified Schaefer with America's religious right, which was able to exercise considerable political clout during the Reagan era. 
And here is a quote from a recent series um, on PBS in America called God in America. Um, And this was from episode six of God and Caesar. The series was aired last month. And if you want to watch it, you can see it online. And uh, in in this sixth episode, uh, the commentator says, the threat of a more secular America would eventually drive conservative evangelicals out of their isolation and back into politics. The intellectual catalyst for that change was Francis Schaeffer, an American fundamentalist theologian working in Switzerland. At that time, um, the time of um, the Reagan era, the German magazine Der Spiegel described Schaeffer as the philosopher of the moral majority. His book, A Christian Manifesto, dismayed some of his most loyal followers by advocating civil disobedience in some circumstances. Undiscerning readers, it was felt, could easily see him as advocating civil religion. In aligning with the religious right, however, Schaefer was in fact putting into practice his concept of co-belligerency, an idea too nuanced for many who were glad to follow him into political activism. Co-belligerency in social action now replaced Schaefer's separatism, which he had abandoned in 1951 during his struggles over true spirituality. In many minds, Schaefer is still associated with America's Christian right and its growing grassroots politics as a result of his alignment with various co-belligerents. The historian Barry Hankins has tried to make sense of the complexities of Schaefer's impact on evangelicals. In a, in a blog, which I think is quite recent, he wrote, As is often the case with influential complex people, Schaefer's legacy is contested. There is even a third group of evangelicals who were influenced by neither his intellectual work nor his Christian right activities. Instead, they looked to books such as The Mark of the Christian and cherished the model of Labrie with its emphasis on Christian love and community. Whichever Schaeferite influence one claims, the argument here is that the diversity of his legacy and the tension it arouses makes Schaefer second only to Billy Graham in terms of evangelical importance in the late 20th century. At the close of his life, Schaefer was involved not only in political controversy, but in a distinctive stand in what was called the battle for the Bible. Now, um, I mentioned that uh, Schaefer was involved in this controversy of the battle for the Bible. It has been claimed that his activity in this area, including his helping to found the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy in 1977, was his separatism re-emerging, which I think is a totally wrong idea. But for Schaefer, the battle lines were not drawn around the inerrancy of Scripture as such. He felt that such a position could be held coldly, without love. Rather for him, the watershed issue was obeying the Bible, which leads on to the whole idea of the Lordship of Christ. Thus, Schaefer's stance on inerrancy does not mean that we have to read the Bible in a wooden, uneducated way. It is true that where it touches on the cosmos, that is, where it puts a control on scientific investigation by imparting true knowledge about nature, there are absolute limits. But within those limits, there is enormous freedom in Schaeffer's view. There are similar absolute limits in other areas of human knowledge, 
and again, also enormous freedom within these limits. The open nature of Schaeffer's inerrantist view of scripture is demonstrated in his stamps on eschatology. Though he was a thoroughgoing premillennialist, he treated this position as of secondary rather than primary importance. His relations with fellow Christians were unaffected by disagreements about the millennium. His close friend, uh, Ruckmarker, for example, had radically differing, differing views on, the book of, uh, on how to interpret the book of Revelation. The absolute limit in this case was the biblical teaching that Christ will return on an actual day in the future, though we do not know the timing in advance. Now there's an interesting dynamic in um, Schaeffer's view of the Bible. I tried to do a triangle, a triangle here, but I, I failed dismally. Um, but if you can imagine it as a triangle um, with these headings, the, reli- the reliability and authority of the Bible is the head of the triangle, and then at each side of the, of the other points, the lordship of Christ with uh, obedience and a coherent and cohesive worldview. And um, I believe that um, Schaeffer's view of biblical authority is more nuanced and fruitful than many realise. So you have this dynamic relationship between the fact that the Bible is the authority, the absolute authority, and then the lordship of Christ, and then the development of a Christian worldview feeding back upon each other. And these three aspects of the dynamic come out in um, Schaeffer's book, How Should We Then Live? I've just picked out um, three quotations from that book. To the Reformation thinkers, authority was not divided between the Bible and the church. The church was under the teaching of the Bible, not above it and not equal to it. Of course, that also applies to a Christian worldview. A Christian worldview is under the authority of Scripture. And then the second quotation, As Christians, we are not only to know the right worldview, the worldview that tells us the truth of what is, but consciously to act upon that worldview so as to influence society in all its parts and facets across the whole spectrum of life so much as we can to the extent of our individual and collective ability. And the third quotation. This book is written in, in the hope that this generation may turn from that greatest of wickedness, the placing of any created thing in the place of the creator, and that this generation may get its feet out of the paths of death and may live. Stirring words, I think. Independent of political associations, Labri continues today in several countries, including the United States, Britain, uh, Korea, the Netherlands, and Switzerland. In all of them, the personal and communal elements are still the focal concerns. The work is a quiet one, quiet one despite the media spotlights having been on Schaefer in his closing years. Recently, a branch opened in Brazil, which I thought was good news. Now to conclude, never holier than thou, Francis Schaeffer as writer, teacher, pastor and counsellor appealed to men and women of all kinds. He was constantly unexpected and disarming, disarming. Though I would never claim that he was always right and have written in my biography of his faults and flaws as well as virtues, he was, I believe, a compassionate prophet. He understood the roots of sorrow in popular culture, high art and the intellectual world of our time but nevertheless exhibited a profound hope of salvation and redemption, which restored joy in human life. 
He was intense, intensely realistic about the mess we've made of our world, but at the same time inspired a commitment to human endeavour in aiding the downtrodden and shaping a civilization with foundations that endure. Being and remaining human for him was passionately tied up with knowing who we are as image bearers of God. His imagination flew beyond the stars. Schaefer was very aware of his shortcomings and imperfections. He was thoroughly authentic in attempting to live out as well as think rigorously and painstakingly about Christian truth and understanding expressed in a distinctive worldview. He saw truth both, both in theory and practice as one truth, true to the real human being and to the real universe in which we find ourselves, true to the common experience of all people as humans. Believing in God as the person behind all things made him try consistently to treat all people he encountered as bearing God's image and thus of enormous value. This wasn't done as an evangelistic strategy, but because it was the right, proper and truthful thing to do. Yet he was firstly a Christian pastor. This was his way of reaching out to what he felt was a crisis of modern post-Christian humanity. Those he encountered tended to respond to his remarkable and inclusive pastoral concerns. Christ has called his followers to be in the world, yet distinct from it. Christians who retreat into a comfortable subculture become irrelevant in today's world. C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, Schaefer and other culture shapers had the courage to engage and critique the contemporary world spirit by doing what they were best at in the best possible way. Tolkien and Lewis as scholars and storytellers, Schaefer as a pastor to those in the arts, media, intellectual world or any broken by the world spirit. I admire such people as people and that they made a difference. Ironically, becoming relevant by following what seemed a backwater vision, walking the road less travelled. Schaefer's gift to evangelicalism and to the church worldwide was his commitment to truth, to God, to the human and to the physical environment in which God has placed us, the environment both of our immediate bodies and of the material universe. As a pastor and evangelist, he inculcated a listening attitude to those prepared to engage with his teaching, listening to others and to the culture in which we find ourselves. This was listening for its own sake, because this is the proper thing to do, as well as in order to be able to communicate God's message and his love effectively and relevantly. The authenticity of his life, given his flaws and faults, powerfully backed up his teaching. He passionately lived what he believed, which made him simple and complex simultaneously. Our cultural tendency is to surround ourselves with mirrors rather than with windows. Francis Schaeffer gave us open windows to look through. For me, his abiding achievement was his fresh, quirky and rather revolutionary way of seeing both fundamental Christian truth and the contemporary world, allowing an effective communication of Christ's ancient message in the modern context. This way of seeing was tied up intimately with the creation of a spiritual shelter, which is what Labrie means, for those who saw and felt their need. That place of healing 
was not a retreat from the world, but an outpost in often hostile territory. <coughs> the burning conviction of Schaefer, established early in his life, was that belief in God, as fully revealed in Jesus, was to do with truth, the truth about who I am, about why evil tears apart relationships and societies, about the real universe that is so important to understand, and, and about what is behind human history. He was totally serious about truth in this full sense, which is why he felt such genuine affinity with artists and thinkers of our time who experienced the sorrow at the heart of our culture, rather than escaping into what he dubbed personal peace and affluence. He saw the latter as a problem of the middle-class church. The essence of Schaefer was that he lived, thought and believed authentically. This makes him stand out as a great Christian leader. People responded to him because today, more than ever, we need to have an authentic Christianity in our lives, in our thinking and in our understanding of our modern world. A Christianity which, as Schaefer always insisted, to his last days, is marked by genuine, costly love. Anything less is fluff that will be blown away. A story that typifies the man for me, I only heard from his daughter Susan after I had finished writing the book. It is about one of the children with Down syndrome that Schaefer taught when a young pastor. He taught them um, counting colours and such things and about Jesus. One, called Danny, died about 21 years of age and Schaefer had been told that he still loved Jesus when he passed away. In the very last days of his life, Susan asked his father what came to his mind as one of the most significant things in his whole ministry. Tears came to his eyes. Danny, he said. On a more humorous note is a story about one of, one of his lifelong afflictions. Jim Sire, one of Schaefer's editors, told me of a phone call he received from him. Schaefer said to Jim, Jim Sire, Jim, I just learned why I keep mispronouncing words. I have declasia. <laughs> Great changes in the lives of numerous Christians throughout the world began with a conversation with Francis Schaeffer. His books are still best read, I think, as a conversation. But though their prose is generally rough and ready, they are shot through with vivid analogies and figures. The upper and lower story, the universe and two chairs, the fish developing lungs in an airless universe, the line of despair. The books continue to challenge Christian and non-Christian alike with both the full meaning of biblical truth and penetrating insight into the modern world, a world which grips us all in its spell. A telling summation of Schaefer's contributions is a remark made at a gathering at an evangelical college where various criticisms of his approach to culture were being raised. Someone said, Say what you will, just remember that without Francis Schaeffer, most evangelicals would not even be in a discussion like this. We've got a short time for questions. If there are any points of clarification, what Colin has said, or any comments people would like to make, we've got about ten minutes which to share them. Uh, and it's just a point of clarification. You mentioned, I think, early on in your talk that he later reflected on that time of separation and reassessed it. Uh, could you just say more about, about that? Because I, uh, uh, I didn't quite hear what, what you'd said. Yeah, I'm just trying to think what I said. Um, 
Oh, yes, um, he and Edith, um, it, you can read the account of it in her book, The Tapestry, but she doesn't say exactly when the period was when they, when they um, um, felt that they'd uh, treated many people badly during that period of separation. But one of the things they did, they wrote to a lot of people um, apologising. Uh, they felt they should set, set things right in relationships with many people. They felt that um, um, what they saw in their own separatism and in the separatism of many was, was um, unloving and, and didn't reflect. You know, um, um, Schaeffer's concern that um, love is expressed, you know, in, in truth, with, with truth. Mm. Truth is expressed with love, I mean. <laughs> yeah. As it comes over in his booklet, The Mark of the Christian... Does that, does that... Yeah, I suppose the point I, I was a little bit confused was that people often do separate on issues of truth. Yes, uh, a, yes. He would, I, think, um, I think that's a different matter. I think he, he was looking at uh, how it had been practised in, in separated denominations, not on the issue of truth. He, to his dying day, he insisted that um, um, uh, Christianity is true. You know, somebody asked him, do you, do you still believe Christianity is true right at the end of your life? Of course I do, you know, there's no alternative. Um, and um, and uh, so it wasn't over the, over the necessary, um, the exclusive nature of, uh, of Christian truth, but over the issues of relationships and how you deal with fellow Christians, uh, those you don't agree with, clearly. So you're not just a cosy, you know, um, ghetto, basically. Do you think his approach if he'd been alive today, would have changed at all? It's, a, it's an impossible question to answer, but you said his earlier life presaged his later life, and I just wondered if you could see any developmental um, yeah, no. difference in the approach that he may have taken today. Can you answer that impossible question? Um, no. All I, all, all I can say is, I can't really answer that question, but it's not as bad as a question I was asked on American radio, which was what he would have thought about what was happening in America today. I wasn't going to say even if I thought, even had my thoughts about it. Um, but um, um, as you look through his life, although he made many mistakes and you know, he had the, many flaws, you, you can see this uh, development, uh, as I tried to show in those early articles, and I think he was just um, working it through. I, I, I wonder whether, and this is something I would have liked to have asked him if he was still around, um, how he related biblical authority to the development of a Christian worldview. Because when you work out a Christian worldview in a culture, you're bound to make mistakes. You know, it's a bit like what he was saying about the fact that the church is under the authority of Scripture. It's not the church being equal in authority of Scripture. And it's the same way with a, a Christian worldview. It, a Christian worldview that you develop... Um, in, in a particular context, doesn't have the same authority as Scripture itself, but it has to be um, under the authority of Scripture and constantly modified by it, and there has to be a constant feedback between the two. And um, um, I would have liked to have asked him about that, and, and I think perhaps he would have um, worked out the idea of wholeness, which comes out in his book, True Spirituality. But it's impossible to say. But it, there was that consistency in all the mistakes he made. Uh, thanks, Colin, for your talk. Um, I was thinking about Schaefer and worldliness and what he would say to um, leaders in the church who, who would tell us that to read novels, to see films, to take an interest in culture is worldly and something that uh, Christ doesn't want us to do. How would he respond to that? 
Yes, the question of, um, of what, what is worldliness, basically. I remember when I first went as a student to Labrie, uh, I was working for a Christian organisation, and um, Schaefer said to me, um, the problem with, with this organisation, which he greatly admired, by the way, was that he said it was neoplatonic. Um, now, at that time, I, I, I knew what platonic meant, but I didn't know why he called it neoplatonic particularly. Um, but, um, but he was making the point that it was later what he talked about, super spirituality, that you can, um, um, you can become so spiritual that, uh, that, you, um, that you have a, mis- a misunderstanding of what worldliness is. I think his, how Schaeffer saw worldliness was... Um, the essential rebellion against God so that Christ wasn't the Lord of your life in every area of your life. So we all as Christians have to struggle with allowing Christ's rule to extend into more and more parts of our lives. And so I suppose what's worldly in one person might be different from what's worldly in another. I don't know. But um, um, I think it's when people locate worldliness into something very specific like going to see films... um, uh, then they, they've not really understood what uh, the Lordship of Christ is all about and, uh, and what, why God made the universe in the first place with all these wonderful things in it, you know, gifts and uh, human creativity, and, uh, which um, Schaefer took great pleasure in. And uh, I remember when I was a young student how relieved myself and many of my friends were, many of them are artists and writers now, that oh, we could go and see films because Schaefer goes to see them I don't know actually how many of the films he saw, whether he just read reviews and based his lectures on those, but um, certainly um, it was um, a time to, um, to actually um, attend to what our culture was saying. Um, and, and part of that is to is look at films and, and, uh, and, and watch plays, and, uh, and, and, uh, but to not let them um, become propaganda, to actually um, work out what they're saying and have compassion for the people that are making them. Just on that note about uh, Schaefer's relationship with that, two uh, related questions, if I may. How did he go about exploring contemporary art and, and music and things like that? And why is his influence on British evangelicalism very, I think, what probably quite strong in adopting his theology and his, his robust biblical worldview, but I don't feel that British evangelicalism is particularly artistic no, and, and creative. And I was, yeah. yeah. Why, why might that be, do you wonder? Um, I mean, I'm, it's difficult to... I'd start giving you my ideas rather than what Schaefer's ideas would be on that. Um, but I think that um, uh, it's this label again of Neoplatonism that he used, probably not all that accurately, but um, this idea of super-spirituality, that um, not recognising as human beings that we're, we're not just individual, but we're social beings, and we, uh, we're meant to... Um, art and, and film and poetry, literature and all these things, and the sciences are part of the human life that God has given to us. Um, and um, perhaps in this country, um, we, we haven't uh, really come to terms with... See, seeing the Lordship of Christ over every part of life. And, uh, but I can say that from the period when Schaefer was well-known, you know, a couple of generations ago when I was a student, um, many, many people who, who came in contact with his thinking did go into the arts and, work, go into, say, working for the BBC or into filmmaking like Norman Stone. I'm, my friend Pauline Fisk, who's a major children's novelist, 
and um, Steve Turner, <coughs> poet, and many others, and many people I don't know, um, realised that, um, that God can call you into uh, every area of life. It's back, it's back to the Reformation view, really, that, um, that our calling can be, um, can be any area of life, you know, whether, whether you're a, um, emptying the bins in the street or whether you're the Prime Minister. You know, you, you've got to see it in the context of, um, of the call of a divine call. I, that would, I think that would be shaved with mentality. But why... Why um, <clears throat> there, there's so, still a lot of resistance to um, f- full-blooded involvement in the in, in the culture is, is difficult. No, mainly perhaps because it's so hard. You know, we're we're in the spiritual battle, whatever we do. Um, not only in the arts and sciences, but um, if you're teaching, um, if you're whatever job you're doing, basically, it's, it's tough when you're not in a. We're in a post-Christian society, which I think is. I would go with C.S. Lewis and, and Schaeffer and see post-Christianity as the, as the basic category. Postmodernism categories like that are much more superficial, I think, than, than the category of post-Christianity. With, um, with Schaeffer's emphasis on the importance for Christians to understand worldview and culture, I'm just interested to know how he was viewed by the leading evangelicals in Britain and America in the 50s, 60s and 70s, was he viewed with suspicion or was he widely respected for the work he was doing? It took time. There was, um, I just want to read you something that um, Oliver Barclay wrote. In, some people kindly made commendations in my book and um, some of them just took the opportunity to say how much Schaefer had meant to them, which I don't mind at all. Um, but Oliver Barclay was the General Secretary of the UCCF for many years. He was a research scientist, very active in um, Christians in Science, and in the whole move to, for um, Christians to get involved in the academic world after the Second World War. And this is what uh, Oliver Barclay says. Um, Francis Schaeffer made an immediate impact for good in the evangelical community as soon as he spoke at conferences and his books were published in the UK. The evangelical recovery in the 1940s to 60s was largely led by preachers such as Dr. Lloyd-Jones and John Stott and the university CUs linked to IVF, now UCCF, and their graduates. It needed fresh apologetic backup to tackle head-on the dominant theological liberalism and the subjective tendencies of the time. Schaefer was fearless in his searching analysis of the weaknesses of the liberals and of many evangelical responses to them. He came at just the right time, and his constructive response helped enormously to inject a new theological confidence into the evangelical community and to warn them of the dangers of escaping to subjectivism. He is still as relevant today as a new liberalism and weak responses recur. Does that help at all? Because Oliver Barclay, he's, uh, he's very um, knowledgeable about um, the evangelical movement since the last war, and he, he thinks that Schaefer was very important in, in helping us. And in fact, many, many Christian leaders today, if you scratch below the surface, you'll find that they've been helped at some time in the past by reading Schaefer or heard him speak many years ago. You mentioned about Schaefer's squeaky voice. Yes. Now, of course, I used to, I used to work in the tape library recording the recordings yes, yeah. and copying them as well. And part of the problem with that is the speed of the tape recorders. We were using reel-to-reel tape recorders then, Mm-hmm. And now they've done some cleaning up, I believe, turning into MP, MP3s. 
Uh, and I think that's part of the problem. They are copies of copies of copies, mm -hmm. and the speed of the tape recorder changes. I mean, I myself used to listen, listen to his lectures and, at, at twice the speed, so I, I could get so through far. them all, these yeah, hundreds yeah. of hours. And I didn't find it a problem. Yes. So I've heard people say that. What do you think? So they but made him less squeaky. He has got a squeaky voice. Well, he was still pretty high register, I think. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't. Yeah, that's what I said. I said high high register, because it was. Uh, I've heard other American voices a bit similar to Schaefer. Um, I, it didn't bother me. It was part of his um, slight eccentricity, which I think often is the mark of a of a good teacher. You know, the kind of teachers you remember may make an impact on you. They have often got something. Um, exceptional about them or, or unusual that makes them memorable. Yes, yes, I must. Uh, I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to listening to some MP3s uh, to de-squeak with Schaefer de-squeaked. Many of us have, have read um, "Total Truth" uh, by Nancy Piercy, who is a disciple of um, Schaefer, and I'd like to know uh, how influential she is in the States. Um, and whether there are other authors who uh, have yeah. a, a similar grasp of, of what he said. I think there are many now. There's Nancy Piercy, um, Douglas Grutus, and uh, um, Osganess, and uh, many more, and there's uh, various forums. There's a lot happening. Um, you know, we, we tend to just hear about the um, um, movements such as the, the Tea Party and uh, other gr groups like that, but uh, in fact... Uh, in, uh, in the area of philosophy, for example, there's, uh, there's a number of Christian philosophers that are, the, that are mainstream. Um, so there's a lot of good thinking going on that we can, um, we can look to, I think. And uh, I'm sure many of them have been um, influenced in some way by Schaeffer. Even if they haven't agreed with him, they may have been sharpened. 